Welcome back, everybody, to episode 129, 129 of LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Scott here, as always, with my much better half, the cop turned docked with super mom energy. And I'm saying super mom <laughs> energy because that plays in today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Shiloh. We got a lot of traction with our Burton Ernie meme on Facebook this week. You and your memes and your Facebook, Dr. Scott. I know. I'm such They're a boomer. Very cute. I love Burton Ernie. They're adorable. <laughs> Hi. I'm Hi. doing well bringing some super mom energy. Sure. I can do that today. Yeah, I think you are anyway. Like every mom is a super mom. If, if those kids are alive at the end of the day, you've done your job. That's I'll, damn right. I'll steal that line from Roseanne Barr 40 years ago. But hey, folks, plans for our late spring super special meetup here in LA are firming up. We will be cavorting, consulting, and conspiring with the spooky hosts of Hollywood Paranormal and the stand-up gentleman from LA Meekly to cover a notorious and mysterious case from the history of Los Angeles. More yes. information to come. Yes, you're such a tease, Dr. Scott. I know. And don't forget that we also have the Parapod Festival, April 1st in Valencia, California. Two great opportunities to come hang with us. You can get your tickets for that on parapodfestival.com. Dot com, but that's not all. We have a better deal for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> CrimeCon UK is June 9th and 10th in London, and we will be doing a few things there, including having our booth, a main stage presentation, and then we're going to be doing a panel with the podcast What's Up Doc, and how you know appropriate, because we're going to be talking about true crime documentaries on that panel. So let us know what you would like us to cover on that. I think it would be really cool not to only review a documentary, but but maybe talk about how true crime documentaries, you know, what are the ethical lines that they cross? What are the some of the things we talk about here with the victim's voices being the narrative or not? That would be really cool to kind of bounce that off of each other in the audience. I'm so glad you set that up. Thank you. So if you want to get your tickets for that, we can give you a code for 10% off. That's at crimecon.co.uk and use the code confidential for that discount. So yeah, we would love for you if there's any chance that you're one of our listeners over there or traveling from another from Slovenia, who is our numbers are up in Slovenia, as well as <laughs> Hungary. So thank you. If you want to jaunt over to LA, not so confidential at CrimeCon. We'd love to see you. Yeah, let us know. Seriously, like if you if you know you're going to be in the area, let us know so that we can meet you in person because we we just love doing that. It's the yep. one of the best parts of this this gig. I really love it. A last week's show, episode one two eight, we explored the criminal acts of funeral homes and even coroner's offices. While relatively rare, there are business owners that absolutely use their position of power to take advantage of people at their most vulnerable. But it isn't only financial crimes. There's also the abuse of human remains in a variety of forms. Good so way to check put it. it out. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> check it out wherever you grab your episodes of LA Not So Confidential. Yes. So moving on to our documentary review today. But at the top, we always talk about what we're watching or listening to or even reading sometimes. And I would like to recommend a podcast. I'm listening to Havana Syndrome. It is put out by Vice and it addresses mass psychogenic illness, which by the way, that's how we referred to it when we talked about Havana syndrome. Like we briefly, briefly touched on it in our right. folly adieu episode. Of course, now we know that it's a real medical concern. It was a real thing caused by government operatives, but it's so interesting because I've learned through this podcast, which is great, that even the FBI's behavioral analysis unit 
originally made the determination that it was mass hysteria and they hadn't even interviewed anyone who had been affected by it. And they just blatantly said, nope, this is what's going on. Yeah, so badly done, by the way. I mean, I have wonderful friends at the FBI, but any oh, yeah. any agency, any responsible psychologist or uh, mental health professional is not going to make that kind of determination. You just don't. You don't make well, that determination without evaluating people. Mental health professionals, but I know they have some consultants at least. So that, yeah, something fell through the cracks there. But oh, okay. great podcast. Highly recommend. Haven't been watching a lot other than the documentary we're going to talk about today. So what about you? Not a lot. We are in the midst of packing and planning for a move, as I've talked about in previous episodes. So there's a lot going on. It's been really busy at work, like extremely, extremely busy at work. The job mm. that I have for my day job tends to go in cycles. And this yeah. is one of those cycles that it's just something's in the air, you know, or some some planet somewhere is getting wonky, but there's been a lot, but also some very interesting and fascinating cases that yeah. interestingly enough, our work here on this podcast, which has sent me in the direction of becoming really a subject matter expert on a couple of different areas mm -hmm. has proved really invaluable to Great. the team that I work with, which is very, very cool. What I'm watching, though, is The Last of Us. Oh, I, just started I, it. I never played the video game. Dan gave up. He's like, no more zombies for me. I'm just not, uh, you know, it's just not his thing, which I totally yeah. get. Like, we have, we have different tastes. I didn't think it was going to be that great. I am a stupid, huge fan of Pedro Pascal because I think he's really quite a gifted actor. But I'm telling you, folks, you need to watch that show just for episode three because oh. it is absolutely beautiful. It's a really, really great story. It's something that you we haven't really seen. Walking Dead did a version of it, but not to this extent. So yeah, yeah. let us know. We should talk about it on our Discord channel. For those of you that are on our Discord, we'll talk about The Last of Us and see what yeah. people Yeah, I just started it and my husband did play the video game. So, and he was sitting there watching the first episode with me last night. He's like, this is so crazy how exactly like the opening of the video game it is. And, and I've never played it, but that's what everybody's saying is yeah. that it's, it's very, very much like the video game, which I'm sure would be terrifying because these, these oh, it was. zombies are really scary. So this month's documentary is Sins of Our Mother. It is a three part miniseries on Netflix that premiered in 2022. It's directed by Sky Borgman, who is also responsible for Abducted in Plain Sight, Girl in the Picture, Unsolved Mysteries, and I Just Killed My Dad. It's got a Rotten Tomato score of 100%. I can completely see why. I do have a couple of things, like as we come up and talk about the structure and the way it's yeah. presented, you know, I have, a, I have some concerns, but it's a wacky story. Wacky story. Yeah, I think that's the highest rating maybe we've had on any of our documentaries that we oh, yeah. reviewed. I would, I would, I would say so. Yeah. So just as a, I don't even know how you do a quick plot synopsis, but I tried my damnedest here with this story. This docuseries follows the events of Lori Vallow's early life and marriages, which include her spiritual journey with the LDS church. And this journey turned very dark and eventually led to her fixed delusions and numerous deaths of those around her, including two of her children. So for trigger warnings today, we have child murder, we have gun violence, extreme religious delusions, religiosity, which I know can be triggering to some folks, especially when it overlaps into some talk about cults. So we just want you to listen with care if that is a particularly sensitive area for you. Yeah. And this is 
also one of the documentary episodes that's probably going to have more of a psych influence or a psych commentary by us than maybe some other ones, because this really is more than just the typical run-of-the-mill antisocial personality disorder or angry divorced dad. This is really some what seems to be some real symptoms and presentation of mental illness. Yeah. Um, So why don't we just start with like our overall impressions about the show? Yeah, without given the the rating that we say for the end, I would say as far as the content, there's a lot there and it's great in the sense that for true crime aficionados, this is really, it's a major story. Yeah. And the audience is really taken on this journey of a family woman who seemingly has it all. And also something that really has to be remembered throughout everything we talk about today is we're talking about someone who is, whether you find this person attractive or not, they are by our society standards, a very attractive individual and attractive people get away with a lot more shit than unattractive people, especially thread. So just remember that if you haven't had the chance to see it, think of it in those terms as you watch it. And I think it's going to give you a bigger perspective on entitlement and hierarchy in our, in our society. So now also it has some real indicators of severe mental illness. I've been following this case through a lot on social media since it all came down. I got drawn in when the family members and law enforcement were finally not able to find Lori's children. And you had, they located her and they were chasing down, like, where are the kids? Where are the Mm -hmm. kids? It was just over and over again, where are the kids? And while I want to save the rest for the wrap up on this episode, I'd say that I came away feeling that there was a great deal that was actually left out of the documentary in regards to the background on the perpetrators. And I think that's probably because it's still in litigation right now. That was my impression. Yeah. So with this case, I had not paid attention to it too much. I mean, it was kind of hard not to. I kind of have this thing where there is a big frenzy about a huge true crime case and everyone's going wacky over it. I tend to kind of recoil from that for whatever reason. I don't know if it's just like, Eh, like, let's really wait and see what's going on here just because the media gets so bonkers with stuff. And like I had that with the Moscow, Idaho thing for a very long time. And I just kind of wait a little bit longer. And that's how this case was for me. I mean, I certainly do remember it, obviously, with the world in which, you know, we navigate. But So what I loved about the documentary in that case is that it was very linear and there's so many layers to it. It was very easy to follow, which when I put two and two together of who the director was, it made sense for those other shows of his that we've seen. But it's just it it could have been so scrambled and muffled. And it, it the way that they laid it out was just really, really nice and easy to follow and made it an easy watch in that sense, even though it has really you know, hard to watch content and stuff to hear there. But I also like that the documentary is really feels like it's being led by two of the direct surviving victims, like people closest to Lori, her mom and her adult son, which felt like it was their way to tell a story. You know, there's that opening one of like the second opening scene, I guess, where Lori's mom and her adult son are talking about how they want to remember her And I just thought it was very poignant to start off with that and think about how many families have to have to have to consider this, excuse me, 
when a loved one has done something horrible. And I just thought it was an yeah. interesting conversation of how do we choose to remember this person? What place do they have in our life still? And then we kind of see it unfold as far as just even communication. I I appreciate that perspective. I I think that those two voices are vitally important to the narrative, but there are some problematic things as well inhabiting that space of wanting to remember who they were. Um, I think sometimes that can get in the way of accepting that something really horrible has happened. Mm -hmm. But then again, okay. I we, there's a there's another factor I want to talk about later on because. Yeah we are watching an interpretation of an interpretation totally. of yeah. edited information. So exactly. one of the things that I think is really dramatically powerful and the grab me from the beginning is really the opening scenes. It starts off with body cam footage of the cops responding to a call from Lori's fourth husband. He's talking to them in this manner that is calm, frustrated, concerned, and I would even go so far as like, he, he has a bit of a scared presentation. Yeah, I think this is someone sure. who realizes this, this person I'm with is really uh, deranged and I'm scared. And the reason he's talking to the cops is that he has shown up after a business trip. He's come back home, his car and all of his belongings are missing from the house. And then this episode moves on to speaking with her adult son and he's giving background information on their upbringing and his mother's adoption of a special needs child that was within their family. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, again, like that scene with him sitting down with his grandma, it was very good foundationally for me. It gives the viewer, again, this understanding about the people who are truly impacted. And again, documentaries can start in so many places, especially when they don't have friends or family really as part of the narrative, but also I sat back and I was like, oh, so we're doing this. Like these people haven't even gone to trial yet. <laughs> and here we are with a full documentary, including family. So, you know, it, it, it made me feel like, okay, clearly we have their, we, the documentarians had their permission to do this because they're participating in it. So I felt okay watching it. I know I've talked about like feeling kind of gross with other documentaries, but this one felt like it was sort of giving me like this subtle permission, I guess, to watch. But in episode one, we get a little bit on her family growing up in the Mormon church and then some background on her various siblings. But it quickly jumps into Lori as a young woman talking about a very brief first marriage that does not last long at all. And then she has a second marriage to a man named William, and they have their son, Colby, when Lori, Lori was 22 at the time that she had Colby. And then they divorce, and she marries her third husband, a man named Joe Ryan, and they have a daughter, Tylee, together. So in her marriage to Joe, it does reveal throughout the documentary that Colby and Lori were saying that they were being physically abused by Joe and Colby asserting that he was sexually abused and maybe even Tylee, because I think at one point Lori says there's like an audio tape of her saying he was raping my children and she says it plural. Okay. So I don't know if he was abusing his own daughter Tylee as well, but Lori takes the kids and flees this marriage from Joe. And this is where we first see, you know, kind of her real tight connection with her brother, Alex, because he essentially comes to her rescue, if you will, by tasing Joe, talks about tasing him in the groin area. 
And the way that they present this is Alex is actually doing some sort of like stand-up comedy night and he has a whole bit about tasing his pedophile ex-brother-in-law in the nuts. And it's just such a weird moment. Well, I think it's very valuable. It's a very valuable telling moment because what it did for me mm-hmm. in watching his not good stand up. Yeah. And, you know, stand up can talk about very, very difficult things, but yes. he he didn't handle that adeptly at all. You know, even if there was a setup, the audience clearly was not responding to it. They were really uncomfortable. So that shows kind of a lack of insight. Like mm-hmm. you're a wannabe stand-up comic. And he was always described as like being the funny one in the family. Yeah. And it makes you think, well, wait, does the whole family have this skewed perception on things? And like Lori's yeah. bro- other brother seems very on top of it and yeah. very clued in. But the rest of the family seems somewhat naive, including her mom. There are some things about the way that things are described that seem that there's a particular view of the world that mm-hmm. maybe she grew up with that, mm-hmm. you know, contribute to this. So yeah, it's yeah. it gets it just gets thicker and thicker. Yeah. Real quick, for sure. So after she leaves Joe, she ends up getting married a fourth time and that's to Charles Vallo. He had sons already from a previous marriage and then Lori and charles adopt jj the cutest little kid in the world and beloved by the family like apparently just just went into this family with these these two older siblings that just loved him unconditionally and it's wonderful you can see that in the lots of footage that they have and they use yeah, so you kind of have this Brady Bunch of a couple families coming together, finally with Lori, Charles, and it's around this time that her son Colby, the adult son, really starts talking about the church increasingly becoming more of a topic of conversation in the home. He says that slowly, like pictures of temples start going up on the walls, replacing other pictures. And then at some point, Lori says that God speaks to her and tells her she needs to move the family to Hawaii. And while always having been religious, again, this is just a trend that family members, at least in hindsight, are starting to talk about. So she and Charles moved the family to Kauai for three years. And while there as part of the church, she confides to one of her church friends that she things aren't great between her and Charles. And she doesn't think that he's a quote unquote spiritual equal to her and that he's essentially holding her back from, you know, some of God's work that she has yet to do. And again, this is sort of a moment in which you're hearing people talk about her beliefs becoming more and more extreme. She's saying that she's communicating with angels and getting messages from angels. She's talking about what stood out to me. She's saying, I don't have to sleep much anymore. Bingo. Yeah. And is, you know, hyper, hyper focused on doing the Lord's work. And then after those three years, they end up moving back to Arizona. And this is a time where Colby, now an adult, gets engaged to a Christian woman. And this is where we see Lori starting to act very, I would say, jealous, bizarre, sad, like depressive, sad, and really starting to focus on these end times that she believes are coming. Yeah, there's something that's going on right here where she now is getting more and more involved with 
the more fringe elements of the LDS church. And she is engaging with podcast hosts and authors mm-hmm. who really are quite, gosh, what's that branch of the church of uh, LDS called like fundamentalist, but they're very, very fundamental. There's a sect it's that has much more extreme beliefs. But I found very interesting from a family systems perspective that there was really at this point in that episode showing that there's enmeshment going on in the family. And it's not new. It's been going on for a while. Like I, you know, her son is not only another attractive individual, he's a good looking guy and quite devout himself, but there you see all these pictures and she's on top of him. Like seems like there's a real weird sort of blend for her, at least probably not for him, but a, a, like a, a, a poor and diffuse boundary, I think happening. Lori, like I said, very attractive, very vivacious she really needed to be the center Mm -hmm. of attention. And that is very clear in this documentary, even before they state it outright. She made comments to her new daughter-in-law that were both inappropriate as well as bizarre. And the one that stuck out to me was Jesus loves me more than he loves you. And that becomes very important later on as she becomes part of this spiritual ranking system within this shared belief system Mm -hmm. that emerges. You know, anyone who has been through having a family member that commits a crime or is involved in a crime, it it is unlike anything else. You're not the victim of the crime, but you were doing time with the individual. It is a very, very difficult place to be in. I felt like the way mom comes across at the beginning is that she's either still in shock even these these years later or she her way of getting by is to be in a certain level of denial Mm. you know her presentation is a little bit strange but that could be artificial as participants in documentaries are very much told by producers how to frame their stories yes talk about it as you remember it rather than through the lens of what someone may have done so if you know if you see this all the time on oxygen shows when a woman has been horrifically abused by her husband the first thing the producers do is like tell how great it was in the beginning yep oh josh was just such a sweetheart when we first met and it was great dates and then he chased me with an axe that kind of thing Right. Even so, it's very interesting, the family dynamic here, because the mother says, I have to think of Lori, of how she was, not how she is now. So again, I don't know if that's true denial or the producer's direction, but there's something almost naive about mom. Dad starts off with a lovely religious message saying that Lori is loved by her heavenly father. But then he segues into equating mental illness or antisocial personality disorder or selfish actions as being of the devil, like that mm-hmm. this is this is spiritual warfare. And regardless of your belief system, I just want to go on the record here that stigmatizing mentally ill people within a religious framework is a terrible thing. And it minimizes the horrific nature of the crime. And it further marginalizes individuals with mental illness, because as we have always said, the vast majority of people with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violent crime than to commit violent crime. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for honing that in because it's really important. And I think, you know, we, we don't know what's going on here. We don't know where they are in all of this. Their journey, you know, is still long with having trials to come up and contend with. And, you know, I think at the end, her mom, we don't see this very often, but her mom does say like, no, I was very supportive of her at the beginning. I said on the news, 
that there's no way this could happen. And she's like, I was wrong. Like I, yeah, I, I didn't, I don't know anything because obviously yeah. that, was, that wrong. was, and I, yeah, you rarely see that. So I, I think we just don't know where they're at in the place that they are when they're filming. It's got to be incredibly tense and scary. And that's a really great point, Shiloh. You know, in those clips where you later see mom and Lori's sister saying, absolutely, this is not this. She had nothing to do with this. You know, that's kind of what you want from a healthy sure. family is like people that are like and from their perspective and their framework it was completely out of left field it's not possible for it right. to be right yeah. that's just that's yeah, their paradigm exactly yeah so going back to our our timeline here we said that her beliefs start to get more extreme and then we see this sort of prepper behavior <laughs> again in the extreme yeah. so particularly again you talked about enmeshment we see Lori and her brother Alex, the not-so-comedian, start really getting close and bonding over these end times and these friends in this podcast group that they were in. She is appearing on the podcast with some of her thoughts as a guest. Then she starts going to these conferences. They're called Preparing the People. And that's where she meets Chad Daybell, who is one of the speakers at the conference. And, you know, I know people have framed this in terms of like a cult and like he does not give me charismatic leader vibes. He's just like such a goober is <laughs> the best way to explain it. But I think that that's what made it more believable to some people is he wasn't this super slick, charming yeah. guy. He was, you know, he's a heavy, you know, heavy set middle-aged man, but he also in his youth was very attractive. Yeah. And again, we don't diagnose directly, but I will say that it's very interesting to look at characteristics of what we call covert yeah. narcissism because covert narcissism doesn't look like the narcissism we're all used to seeing it's hidden it's very deep it comes out in manipulative actions and behaviors that aren't as recognizable to the person that's being manipulated or as recognizable to the person who yes. is doing it so chad he meets Lori and immediately tells her, we've been married multiple times before in many other lives. And where this is all coming from essentially is, and what Chad's books are about is that he has had at least one near-death experience. I think multiple, they, they talk about the first one, yeah. but he says that this is what gives him the power to speak with God and quote unquote, look and communicate beyond the veil. And he has predicted the apocalypse that's going to happen in, I forget, I think it's July 2020. And then yeah. there are 144,000 chosen people that will survive. And he believed that Rexburg, Idaho was going to be the protected land that would be the new Jerusalem. So he who is married and has five kids, he moves his family to Rexburg, Idaho. And Chad tells people, his quote unquote followers, that he's actually going to be the one leading this new life, not Christ, as a, many other people believe when this comes. So again, not so covert there saying that you're the one that's going to be leading everybody. I totally understand what you're saying, but you know, it's, it's picking out those little yeah. threads where you're like, Hmm. No, this guy isn't just a goober. Well, it's true. And there's a there is an interview with another author whose books were published right. by him. And she's fascinating because she is engaging. She's a very high energy individual with some very extreme beliefs and 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 also considers herself to right. be a prophetess as well. She's very, very upfront about that. But 
it's so interesting to see someone that with extreme beliefs, but draw a very distinct line. She's like, he is saying that he is Christ. He is not right. Christ. And that's where the problem is. That's where Lucifer got into him. She even uses the term. She says, Lucifer see, I love that they him. used her because it just, I do too. It's gave another perspective. And, you know, even she says like, people think I'm crazy and what I have to say. <laughs> And I think that totally yeah. validated a lot of what she was then saying about him. So very interesting. But yes, yeah. he started a publishing company. He wrote his own books, but then he published other people's books along the same lines as well. So then this is the point where they have a forensic psychologist come in to offer some commentary. His name is John Matthias. And he talks a bit about Chad. You know, you can see him clearly at his desk with the DSM and some paperwork, and he talks about doing forensic examinations. He offers a little bit. I feel like we don't get to see much of him. I was hoping like, oh, they'll go back to this guy episode after episode, but they yeah. they really don't. I think he could have offered a lot more as a subject matter expert. I couldn't figure that out. I, I yeah. couldn't figure it out. I'm glad you point that out because I, I got on the edge of my seat like, oh, great. I don't yeah. know this guy. And this is they've got an expert. And, you know, these documentaries are more and more getting legit people on. So I, too, was interested in why so little was actually said. It may have been from Dr. Matthias being concerned about complicating the legal proceedings. That's something that you and I talk yeah. about a lot. You know, in looking at his profile online, it looks like the bulk of his work may have been more focused on sexual predators over the years. But there's certainly a lot of criminal mm -hmm. crossover. But, you know, I'm sure that that he had his reasons for limiting his commentary, or maybe it was an editorial decision. I mean, he sure. could have like shared a bunch sure. of stuff and then somebody came forward and, to Netflix and said, by the yeah. way, this is still in the process and you say this, this or this, and you're going to be liable for right. a lawsuit. That that actually very much yeah, could happen. Yeah, definitely. But I, I think it's pretty obvious at this point in the docuseries that Lori is hitting on a lot of the most common themes that oh, we yeah. see in delusional belief systems. Completely agree with you. We've got very high religiosity, mm -hmm. grandiosity, dictatory ideation, also, which we like yeah. paranoid beliefs, you know, that we're so special, somebody wants from us, you know, they're after us. The paranoid delusion combined with narcissism or this self-centric presentation. Oh, it that's is. a problem. And an individual like this, you know, someone that presented with these things that I've been explaining, all of those factors would be spinning together, driving each other in a snowball effect. And the trigger here that would be really concerning to me is if somebody is having a manic or a hypomanic or even a cyclothymic episode combined with this complete immersion in apocalyptic end times beliefs. So the end times is a big, very uh -huh. big deal for many those who are engaged in extreme subsets of religions. You have talked about this in your overvalued mm -hmm. beliefs, you know, that there's absolutely an intersection there. And then that snowball, let's just to use this, like that snowball now hits it's another snowball with just as firm yeah. beliefs. And now you've got an avalanche. Oh God, that's such a great way to put it. And thank you for talking about, you know, if there is a potential for manic or hypomatic episodes going on there. Cause yeah, I mean, that's what it feels like. It feels very manic. And the lack of need for sleep. Remember I haven't oh, slept completely. in days. Yeah. But yeah, it could be the way that they wanted to make us feel by watching this episode, but it just feels like it's ramping up faster and faster, right? Like spinning. True. But Very good the point. ton of energy and effort put towards all of this, as well as, you know, still being a mom, sleep, that was a huge red flag, of course, but it does feel 
very manic. So yeah. she's kind of spun up to this point. And this is when Lori starts articulating that she believes that her husband, Charles, has been taken over by a demon. And she is quote unquote, waiting for this demon to die. So while she has that thought process going on, she starts telling her family that she caught Charles cheating on her. So now she has this other narrative that is going to sort of explain why she's distancing herself from him or when he starts telling the family that she's acting crazy, what are they going to think? I think it's sort of a brilliant plan on her part to set all these things into motion. That's true. We also don't know if he wasn't cheating. Oh. Because they don't, in the documentary, they do not address that at all. So there is the possibility that he was involved with somebody and she found okay. out. Yeah, I hadn't considered know, that. Or it's manipulation on her part. But there are many times that she clearly lies. She just oh, out God. and out lies over yes. and over again. Yes, yeah. talk about snowball and avalanche for sure. He does try to alert the family that she's changing drastically. Everyone thinks he's just trying to deflect from this yeah. infidelity issue. So this is what brings us to that opening scene is that he goes away for a business trip, which she she's in cahoots with her brother, Alex. She cancels his flight back home. She tells Alex, go to the airport parking lot and get his car. And then he does that. They remove all of his stuff from the house. And he finally is able to make it back home. And that's when he calls the police and we see the body worn video. And he says, you know, she has said that she is going to murder me. And the other piece isn't just that all of his stuff is gone. He can't get in touch with his kids. So right. Like you described, the worry in this man's voice, to me, it's so heartbreaking because he's so worried for his children and how no one has heard him when he's been talking about what's going on. And now he has to kind of explain this crazy shit to the police like they're ever going to believe him. I just my heart breaks for him because it's like an impossible situation. It's like the Twilight Zone. Well, and you think about police field work in that way. It's not likely they're going to believe him. The first thing, I mean, and I get it. Like if you're showing up and you like how many domestic violence, IPV yep. issues and accusations do you see on a regular basis oh, in that kind of time. job? There's nothing to discern any right. difference. I mean, I think it would be a great lesson to cops to watch something like that and go, okay, how could we have done this in a way where we would actually get more useful information? Because in the clip that we saw, I did not see them getting useful information. And I thought he was actually giving them prompts that were really valuable. Look, we're LDS. Mm -hmm. She has really extreme beliefs. She has said she's going to murder me. I don't understand why the cop didn't go. She's going to murder you. Could she? Does she have access to a gun? Where is she now? Where do you think she is? Like they could have jumped yeah. on that. There were a couple. Well, and, um, and this is great conversation because I wanted to talk about the, is it his sister? Because it's one of her sister-in-laws that is talking about how Gilbert PD did not do enough in that yes. moment. And then yeah. later when, you know, they're trying to resolve all this and they bring Lori into the police station. So oh just gosh. like very quickly, he, they kind of tell him that night, like, well, there's nothing we can do. They're like, there's no court order in place. There's no crime. They're very nice. They're very, like they take their time with him. Yes. And then the next day he knows that she has to take JJ to school. So he goes to the school and basically opens her car door, takes her purse, takes her phone. So she can't like leave. And then he calls the police to respond there to help with this ongoing issue. So then they show video footage of the police interviewing her at the station with the kids there. Right. So 
there's this scene where they talk to Charles's sister and she's pretty upset at the cops of how this sort of shakes out. And again, we only saw maybe a couple minutes of this video, but I thought it was a little bit of an unfair of the cops not doing enough because the only crime they really have is maybe him stealing her purse out of her car at this point. There's not a whole lot. It's sort of this family mediation issue. Clearly, they're not getting along. She's talking about finding him cheating. Right. So without taking anyone to jail or upping escalating this to something that doesn't need to be done, they're saying like, okay, if he brings the purse back, can we sort of let things be okay? And she agrees to that. And that happens all the time in police work. Like if you can just sort of mediate it and no one has to press charges on anyone else, it's not for being lazy cops and you don't want to write a report. It's like, this, not everything has to go get in front of a judge and have charges slapped on someone. Right. Trying to solve something at its most base level. I mean, that's what you do. That's what a good corporation sure. teaches people to do is like before you file a complaint, why don't you try and have a conversation with Now, in person. hindsight, I know it looks terrible right. <laughs> for sure, but I don't right. think it was neglectful on the police department's part. But we can also talk about just her presentation at that point. Well, No, I agree with you that there was not neglect on their part and they didn't have enough to go on. But again, you and I are trained in a specific way. And the thing that I see over and over again playing in my head was Tylee is seated right next to her behind the desk in the evaluation or interview room. And Lori is really ramping up in her manic sort of almost high school girl presentation. You know, she's got like the up talk and she's a super mom and she's this. And Tylee, this 16 year old girl has to reach over and pat Mm -hmm. her on the hand, basically the way you did during an interview one time to get me (laughs) to shut up. And thank you for that, by the way. But she has to calm her mom down, which is an indication as a systems person is like, how often has Tylee had to be the parent or the adult in a situation with her mom? And I would bet it was a lot. I challenge myself in these types of cases, whether the subject is male or female to really flip the Mm -hmm. genders and see if the same narrative being used by the alleged perpetrator would hold up. So again, I just think it's important to look at it because she's making these flippant statements and sure, I'd love to get a psychiatric evaluation. Do they have good beds? I'd love a rest. Let me go, you know, that kind of thing. And which is just the flippancy of it. That's the only thing that doesn't work for me as far. And again, I don't have your experience Mm -hmm. as a cop. I'm not a detective, but here's someone who supposedly is going through this breakup and she is so flippant about it. Like, I would love to have seen just a little more questions like, well, you don't seem very upset. Well, yeah. So here's the other side to that. And I feel like this is going to be a longer documentary episode. But so there's the one issue of like the furniture being moved out, her purse being taken out of her car. But the cops know that this is all building up to the fact that there is a court order to put her in front of a mental health assessor, and they have to enforce that at some point. So I feel like all of this, like, back and forth and like joking around with her in this interview room is one, they're taking her lead because yes, she has that presentation. But to me, it's rapport building because they know they're going to have to drop a bomb and go, we have this court order that we have to serve you with at some point. And you know that it means we're going to have to take you to a facility to be assessed. Once that piece kind of fell into place, I was like, oh, okay, this could be actually a very 
skilled investigator and they knew this was all leading up and they they don't want her to just like storm out and run out so but what is when he tells her you know if they well if you're at home you can just not you can just not open the door Well, i don't know why i don't know who serves that because i was like well why wouldn't they serve her while she's sitting right there. <laughs> I, I right. didn't know if it was exactly. like cross jurisdictions or if I don't know. That's oh. that was very confusing to me. Okay. And but he was telling okay. her, like, you have the right not to open the door if they come to your house. It's just they have to attempt to do this. And we need you to know that this is something that's out there. So I don't know. It was very, very interesting. But yeah, also, like you said, it 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 said a lot to kind of look at how her relationship is with Tylee when she was yeah. sort of getting spun up. So at some point within all of this, Charles finds out that Lori and Chad have been having what he suspects as a romantic relationship. He calls her out on it. She tells him he's crazy. And he says that he basically threatens to confront Chad's wife about it. Like he's done. This is the last thing. I'm going to let her know because you all are ruining people's lives at this point. And the other brother of Lori's, who's Adam, not Alex, he's very supportive of Charles and he sees through like all of this crap as well. All of and it, it sounds yeah. like they're planning this sort of like intervention to get a bunch of family members that care about her together and really intervene with these extreme beliefs. I don't know how that would have gone. But however, before any of that can go down, Alex the comedian brother, shows up at the house and there's an altercation in which he ends up shooting and killing Charles, calling the police and saying that it was self-defense. And that's basically the cliffhanger we're left with at the end of episode one. Yeah. So they gave us a lot in a episode lot. one. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to, to mention is that there was one important thing that stuck with me from that episode where they have a clip of Lori when she was a contestant in the Mrs. Texas pageant during the interview where she's very vivacious and bubbly. She calls herself a ticking time yeah. bomb. Man, because of all the things that she has on her plate and everything that she does. And then, you know, the sister-in-law shares that, you know, Lori always has a tendency to super spiritualize every incident mm. in her life. Like when she was on Wheel of Fortune, oh, yes. you know, that the message of God told her that she was going to be on this. It's like everything has a reason. It's a very black and white view of the world and spirituality. Her son starts to feel like that he ruined his mother's life because he had gone to her and said, your husband is sexually abusing me. And the reaction required that they leave the house. So he has these unresolved mm -hmm. issues that was I part of that, but we were treated so badly. But her response to all of these major life events is, I'm just going to turn towards right. the temple. Everything was always going to be answered by becoming more devout, more involved in the spirit. And to me, that is very black and white. It's very polarized thinking and it's unable or an inability to tolerate sitting in the gray of difficult life circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that's not good. No. I mean, you do it as a defense mechanism, but we need to learn for resiliency's sake. We have to learn to deal with Absolutely. those things. So right off with episode two, we are at the house where the shooting of Charles has occurred and there's more police body-worn video footage of Lori on the scene, Tylee at the scene. And we learn that basically they were all there when this went down. And Alex said that Charles had been threatening Lori with a baseball bat. And 
as she was kind of getting the kids out of the house to go to school. This is when the shooting occurred. So the shooting occurs. She takes JJ to school. And I think she and Tylee go stop and buy flip-flops or something. And then they go back to the house. But again, we have her laughing with the cops, basically about like, oh, we just moved here. And oh, sorry, neighbors. Like we're the ones where a shooting just happened. You know, it's just so, so bizarre. And taking JJ to McDonald's for yeah. breakfast before dropping him yeah. off at school. Just very like my the the mundane activities of my life continue despite the fact that this major yeah, event Yeah, like I happened. need to go buy some time to not be there for a little bit is what it felt like. And- yeah, well, and, and her presentation continues to be that thing that annoys me. It's very flippant. It's very dismissive. Yeah. Regardless of any other factor that this is a tragedy, somebody's dead. Her laughing is inappropriate to the level of acuity of this because it wasn't funeral giggles. It was more Mm -hmm. flirtatious. Mm -hmm. It really felt flirtatious. Yeah, and this this wasn't like dissociated deer in the headlights trauma, like, (laughs) you know, non-responsive. This was my mornings kind of been ruined now, but I'll sit here and talk with you. So as this unfolds, she tells her adult son, Colby, that Charles had a heart attack and died. And then she texts Charles' sons and says that he died and then just radio silent on the phone. They can't get a hold of her for hours and hours. And even then she's still saying like, oh, I don't have a determination from the corner and, you know, just nothing. It's so sad to see their text to her. Like you can't just disappear, Lori, and not tell us what happened to our dad. And then she calls JJ school and says, oh, he died by suicide. Like what the? Like stick to one story. Come on. Yeah. The way that she's able to deflect all of their concerns during that text is really, it's almost impressive. And that's something that we didn't talk about. And really, I I do want to emphasize is that the graphics used in this documentary are really impressive. Like it is, you see the text conversations going back and forth and it's, it's just jarring because you see, wow, she is really in deep. She really believes all this stuff that she's saying. She's so banal in her her discussion of demonic possession that it's it's it jarring. Is. Yeah, I liked the use of that a lot. I know. I think I said in the Tinder swindler I got kind of like sick of that, but <laughs> the way they did it, the the visual graphics were nice and it felt needed. Like this is evidence that they have pulled and it was so perfect to illustrate each and everything that they used it for. For instance, yes. within 4 days she attempts to file a life insurance policy on Charles but finds out that he changed her from being the beneficiary a few months back. So there's a text from Lori to Chad saying, so I talked to the insurance company. He changed it in March. So it was probably Ned before we got rid of him. They can't tell me. That's another thing. They can't tell me, of course, but it's done. I still get the 4,000 a month from social security. So Chad responds, I love you. This is terrible, but it's probably another step in bringing down the Gadian Tons especially Brandon. So we hear her refer to Ned and Ned is the name that they gave this demon that they said was living inside of Charles. And then Brandon, Brandon is married to Lori's niece and her niece is sort of one of these true believers as well. Brandon, not so much. And their marriage is on the rocks because of it. So More paranoia is coming to the surface after Charles' death. She's talking about people being after her. So we're seeing that delusion start to accelerate as well. Definitely. And like we were saying through those texts, people start to discover that Lori and Chad have been utilizing this 
bizarre spiritual rating system that he developed. And in that system, you're either a light or a dark spirit with increasing levels of holiness or evilness. And then at some points when those who go dark, become dark spirits, gain a certain level of number, then the individual person's spirit dies and the body becomes a zombie mm -hmm. and is inhabited by a demon or that dark spirit. Colby quickly identifies that everybody who doesn't adore Lori becomes classified as a dark spirit. And Brandon even gets an attempt on right. his life from someone driving by and shooting out the window of his car as he was getting yeah. out. Can we talk for a second also about like, if you're going to come up for names for dark spirits <laughs> and evil demon-possessing zombies, he names them Ned and Viola. Like it's the most, like what? Like where did come you come up, up with, with that name? Savage. It's so come dumb. On. Yeah. Something crazy. Exactly. Be edgelordy. Yeah, edgelordy. <laughs> so Charles is dead. Lori then moves to Rexburg, Idaho. Remember, this is where Chad is living. This is where he thinks the new world is going to be after the apocalypse. And basically after she moves, this is when the family doesn't hear from Tylee again. And Tylee, again, being 16, she was very communicative texting and calling with her family members. And so Colby's wife starts doing some research where she starts listening to these podcasts that Lori's been on. She starts reading these emails that they actually would get from Charles that they kind of dismissed because they thought that he was this cheating husband and that this is between you guys and we don't want to hear it. But she starts going back through them and realizing that Charles had found these emails between Lori and Chad where it had the full lists of people in this rating system. Yeah. And it's really, really scary because they start looking at people and there's a bunch of light spirits, but then it starts listing other people like Tylee as a 4.1 level dark spirit. Her own biological daughter. So one, once Chad has come into the picture, I mean, that's the thing that seems a little bit culty is starting to isolate oh, you. Yeah. Or this is something else. This goes back to the way Lori interacted with people and even, you know, marginalized her daughter-in-law by saying, you know, Jesus loves me more than he loves you. Mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder if the, the closeness between JJ and Tylee was a threat to Lori's role in the family. And she's just in, I mean, maybe yeah. it's not conscious, but that's yeah. what whatever, whatever emotional or intellectual or cognitive processes going on for Lori. Yeah. She's making a lot of assumptions. I mean, to, all you ever see for a Tylee is just a, a wonderful, wonderful young lady. Oh, yeah. Who cares so much about her siblings. Yes, definitely. And, and also, like, isn't it odd that Chad gives these dark rating systems to her two youngest who are still in her life. Whereas like Colby got a good rating. He's a light spirit because like, eh, we don't need to eradicate him from our immediate family, but yeah. the two youngest kids that are there. Yes. But they continue on with these chilling texts between Lori and her brother about discovering, oh, the other family members are now Z's zombies. Yeah. It's just so, and, and so just like casual, like, Oh, I was doing some research today on zombies. Like, guess who I found out is one today. It was very, very bizarre. It's yeah. Again, it's very relaxed and banal and just conversational. Like, oh, 
guess who guess who i found out or yeah mm-hmm. look that's not looking good for so and so yeah and like we said like we were saying brandon was shot at after divorcing Lori's niece so somebody puts a hit out on him <laughs> yes. let me say that someone puts a hit on him and then she goes his her niece goes and like immediately connects with another person that's you know very entrenched in this belief system and tammy who is chad's wife she gets ambushed and is shot at when she arrives home she survives and chad supposedly runs out to help and that they kind of brush it over and they don't really say what happened yeah, there but like that, weird. that that i think there's probably more civil lawsuits that are going to happen as a result of that for the insurance fraud that he was successful probably. because basically Lori said oh you need to before you do anything you need to make sure it's in your name because i didn't know that with my husband but chad starts telling people that he thinks the spouses need to be dead before his plan can move forward and the plan is basically gathering all together the true believers and killing as many zombies as possible and in this text to Lori, he says the short version is that she has been switched tammy is in limbo and is a level three demonic entity named viola it is in her body it happened about 10 p.m wow. so he's just real specific he gets these dumbass names and he even knows what time the possession Hello. happened happened around then i guess so on october 19th unfortunately tammy dies in her home and chad gets four hundred thirty thousand dollars in a payout from the life insurance company now Lori's brother alex this alleged hitman he marries another follower of the mm-hmm. podcast Lori's niece remarries very quickly as i said before to another follower so they are essentially gathering for the end times which is dated as you said earlier july 22nd 2020 so classic into the world deadline yep. they all move into the same apartment complex in idaho to be ready and the ironic thing is that in the first episode they show chad you know speaking at these different conferences where he keeps like nobody believes me nobody uh-huh. believes me this this is happening. It's going to happen. I mean, I know I was wrong the last time, but right. it's going to happen. Always happens. Yeah. So this apartment complex in Idaho is where the cops finally respond to to do a welfare check on JJ because his grandparents finally are like, we can't get a hold of the kids. Lori's brushing us off. We need them to be checked on just so we know that they're okay. And so... Alex and Chad actually answer the door and they're like, oh, JJ's with his grandma. And the cops are like, nope, because she's the one that called us. She's the one that called. Yeah. (laughs) Wrong. And then they go down to the next apartment and they get a hold of Lori. And she said, oh, no, no, no. He's with my friend in Arizona. And, you know, so of course the cops try to follow up on this and she calls Lori, the friend in Arizona, and confronts her and records it, probably at the police's urging, obviously. And it's so creepy because, you know, she says, I just want to know, like, is JJ safe? And Lori says, yes, he's safe and he's happy. And when you hear her say these things, it's so chilling. Yeah. Because you know she believes it, believing he's better off dead. Right. It's, and ugh. and you know what we have to give props to her friend for really pushing it. I mean the yeah. phone was the phone call was being recorded. Lori pretty much knew the phone call was being recorded, yeah. but the friend was like, "I can't believe you did this." Yeah. Like, you know, you're a spiritual person, you lied and you implicated me. Yeah. You know, she's actually a little bit she holds it together, but she's kind of indignant, you know, it's, and rightfully yeah. so. It was a good pretext phone call for sure. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And then the next day, the cops get a search warrant. And by then, very next day, all the folks have cleared out, like the apartments completely cleared out just overnight. And they're gone again because she has all this energy for being mad to just clear out apartments. So 
The cops start investigating perhaps Tammy's death. Chad's wife wasn't so natural. On December 11th, her body's exhumed, which again, they just kind of leave it there. We don't get yeah, any more not on a lot of information. ongoing. No. Alex, the comedian slash possible hitman brother, then dies the day after Tammy is exhumed. Like it is just bananas as this thing snowballs. Well, right. And then one of the things that happened just before that is there are phone interviews with the woman who was also a true believer that mm -hmm. married Alex. Mm -hmm. And there was apparently a moment of clarity where Alex looked at her and said, I think I'm their fall guy. Yeah. So how interesting. It's too bad you didn't have that insight, you know, before all this crap started. And you, he really was, he was sharing the delusion, but it's interesting. He gets out of the direct relationship with his sister, gets into another relationship with a woman that he's married. They're true believers, but as they're separated from the larger group and her mm -hmm. influence, he has a flash of insight of what have I done? Yeah. And Essentially, I mean, the autopsy comes back as natural causes. I think I've heard elsewhere that it was like a brain aneurysm, but I forget what the the mom speaks to it and says, whatever it was, there was a history in the family. So true. It could have been from stress. Like maybe it was, yeah. you know, maybe he had an aneurysm from stress or a stroke related incident or, yeah. maybe, you know, who knows? I don't know how you induce something like that if you're going to die by suicide or someone else. You right. Know, decides to wipe him off the map. But it, it's around this point as well that they discover that Lori and Chad have been married for a few months. They had this secret yeah. elaborate, well, not elaborate in the sense of like a wedding, but they have this secret wedding in Hawaii with a photographer and they discover the photographs. I mean, it just looks like any other happy couple. And she had ordered a ring from her dead husband's Amazon account. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Forgot I mean, and that. also it's it's really creepy looking at the pictures, knowing what they've allegedly done. Yeah. Yeah. And yet that they're here in this, you know, the place that she loves to go and feel so connected to. And they're wearing, you know, white linen and mm -hmm. have lays around their neck and just beaming at each other. He's playing this stupid ukulele for the camera and she's like doing a little hula. <laughs> so awful. Yeah, it's gross. So then we're at December 20th and this is when the kids are officially considered missing. This is put out to the media. This is probably when most people really started latching onto this case. And then in January, police searched Chad's property as related to Tammy's death. And meanwhile, Chad and Lori are found in Kauai. And they're really just the police contact them. They have a search warrant for the car and are just surveilling them 24 hours a day. And they give her a few days to essentially reveal where the children are. But, you know, in that time, they're just like walking to the beach hand in hand while cameras are following them and news media and police. And finally, when that deadline hits, they arrest Lori and extradite her back to Idaho. And that's where episode two ends. And that takes us into the final episode, which is episode three. So we start to see really just kind of fast forward to court appearances of Lori's first, because Chad has not been indicted at this point. And what everybody was talking about when it happened, right? Just her presentation in court, meaning both affect as well as physical presentation. And like you said, attractive woman, but appeared as if she really wanted to be presentable for court 
hair in like beautiful ringlets, lots of makeup, but then we have the smiling, again, the joking, the connecting with Chad who's sitting in the audience, but not to her parents or her adult son who's there. No connection. Yeah. It was very, again, bizarre, but kind of on par for what we've seen from her so far. Well, her son seems very put off by the, like he was oh, commenting yeah. on her makeup, but I don't think that not necessarily all straight guys understand the magic of makeup If <laughs> and women buy really good specific makeup. And Lori was always put together, yeah. you know? So when she walks in, it is really off-putting. I think as far as people's reactions to the makeup, look, she's in jail. She's not in prison. By the time you get into prison, you have access to pretty much any makeup that you want. Oh yeah. It's always hooped in a lot. <laughs> you want butt makeup. It's always there. But the, you know, she didn't have access to the level of stuff that she would have probably used on the outside. So her foundation seems kind of pale. It's she's kind of ghoulish looking yeah. and her lips are very, very like a garish shade of red for her complexion. But you know, the way that she walks out of the courtroom, she makes sure to like, you know, craning her neck to make eye contact with Chad. And then she just sort of bounces out. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a jaunty little walk. It's kind of crazy. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I think you know, this is going back to what I said before, where you see the family sort of come full circle where they're yes. realizing, oh shit, like she really did likely do this and admitting that they were wrong when they went public with their support. I think just notable because we don't hear from families that often yeah. and we don't hear people talk about how they've just changed their mind on some things. So, so in June of 2020, Law enforcement goes back to the Daybell house after tracking phone records of Alex, the now dead brother, showing him in the backyard for hours after the last known picture of the kids was taken, essentially. Yeah. So they're putting two to two together. Yeah. What is he doing back there? These kids have not turned up yet. And indeed, the kids' remains are found on Chad Daybell's property. Yeah, there's a text exchange where he's texting Lori and he's referring to, I got a, I've got to burn and bury that wood before the storm comes through. Cause when mm -hmm. the storm comes through, it's going to get wet. And so clearly he's talking in code and, you know, then Chad is also on the phone with Lori, who's in jail at the time that the cops have swooped down to do the search. And yeah. from the tone of his voice, you could tell he is really having a hard time processing what's happening. Like this is somebody that has been, and apologize for this word, he has been a smarmy, evangelical, mm -hmm. you know, fanatic since he was a teenager and nothing has ever not gone his way. And you can hear it in his voice. He has an extremely high level of narcissism. Yeah. I have no problem saying that. And his shared delusion has really locked them down in this belief that he's a spiritual warrior. He's a spiritual leader. He is the second coming of Christ and nothing was going to stop him. And there's something almost childlike about the way he goes, they're going to dig in the backyard. Yeah. And then, she's so like, he, are they in the house? And he's like, no, they're on the property. Right, right. So he takes off in his SUV because, of course, that just makes so much sense that you're going to be able to outrun at this point. At this point, just why are they even you know, letting him be unsupervised? Yeah, he's just wandering. Like, he's wandering around talking on the phone. Exactly. So he takes off in his SUV as they're uncovering 
those poor children's mm-hmm. remains. Yeah. So he's arrested. His prelim begins and we get some witness testimony video that we get to see. And essentially a prelim is just, okay, is there enough evidence to charge this person? So you have some witnesses go up there and he does end up getting indicted for the children's murder and Tammy's death and pleads not guilty. And it's interesting because we we hear from a few witnesses, the, the, the homicide detective, and then the woman who was in, she was part of the podcast. She's one of the podcast hosts. Yeah. And she talks about right before nobody hears from the kids again, how Lori was telling her JJ is climbing on the cabinets like a zombie and being out of control. And so the belief is that basically Alex came and got him that night that she was talking about JJ acting in that manner and then likely killed him that night because one of the last photographs of him is in the same thing that he was wearing when they found his remains. So meanwhile... Lori's attorneys maintain she's unfit to stand trial, as we know, you know, not being able to help in her own defense, not being able to communicate effectively with her counsel, not knowing who players are in the courtroom, that sort of thing. And she is, in fact, found incompetent to stand trial, and she is sent to a mental health facility for 90 days for assessment and treatment to restore her competency to see if they can proceed at that point. And there's a call between her and her son, Colby, when she's in jail, and she just, you know, he's basically saying like, he can't believe this and how devastated he is. And you're supposed to protect us and all of that. And she's just, you don't know what I know, Colby, and you'll see. It's just totally 100% sticking to it. It's just, I don't know. You know, I guess at that point you're all in, right? Well, yeah. I mean, not, not that it's a conscious decision, you know, it's, it's delusion and, you know, there's this psychotic disorder happening. Uh, yeah, they they are certainly all in, but it almost felt like, you know, you're talking about Chad being on the phone with her that yes, there's that narcissism, but it almost felt like reality was kind of slapping him in the face a little bit. Right. No, no, no. He's, I think he's starting to get it. Like, yeah. Oh, this is at least not working out the way we think. Lori still seems that she believes that she's going to be exonerated or something's going to happen. So Lori does end up getting indicted for murder and conspiracy. So the thought there is that, you know, she, along with her brother and Chad, conspired to kill the children. And she has been found competent to stand trial since April of 2022. And they are set to be tried together this year in Ada County, Idaho. So I thought this would be a good time to just do a very quick review on the typologies of filicide, which is the phenomenon of parents who kill their children. And Dr. Scott, you and I had talked about this during our episode that we did on filicide, obviously, and LGBTQ plus victims. So parents who had specifically killed their children with that motivation behind it. But it's so interesting because I was doing a training in crisis negotiations for some police officers who are negotiators just like a week or two ago. And we've had a number of incidents where we've had a barricade situation. And in the last couple of years, we've seen mothers particularly who have ended up injuring their children in these incidents and not just injuring, but like stabbing them and causing death. So I was doing this presentation for the negotiators about filicide and why that happens. And I was putting up some examples that we're going to use here. But at the very end, I put up the example of Lori Vallow. And I asked this 
group of men. I'm like, okay, who knows who this is? And it was just like crickets. And I was like, so none of you watch the Oxygen Network? (laughs) And then like everyone kind of giggles. And then one guy raises his hand and he's like, okay, so she was the Mormon woman whose kids went missing. And he totally went through the whole story. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. I know you guys know what this is, but it was, it was really interesting to kind of look at this and talk about it in terms of when we see psychotic parents who barricade themselves and they have not a hostage in the sense that the kid can't leave because sometimes the kid chooses to stay even, you know, even if they're little or if they're teenagers, we've just had so many more incidents of the parent than attacking that child. And our audience knows about the real fine line between suicide and homicide and how that can flip in a second. So we talked about Dr. Philip Resnick in our last episode, and in a 2016 article, he identified five major motivations for filicide. So these categories are specific to the United States. So just keep that in mind, because this is the population which he studied. So the first category is acutely psychotic filicide. And this category can be applied to psychotic parents who kill with no comprehensible motive. In the cases they have been able to study where severely mentally ill mothers are killing their children, like Andrea Yates, the Texas mother who confessed to drowning her five children in the bathtub in 2001, many times psychotic symptoms were present before the manifestation of the violent behavior in the form of persecutory delusions, auditory hallucinations, and pathological impulsivity. So... It's a, it's definitely, you know, I think we'll talk at the end what we think is going on with Lori here. But when you hear acutely psychotic filicide, that typology, Andrea Yates should pop into everybody's mind as an example. Yeah, because she really had fixed. I mean, she was, there's a part of me that has a great deal of compassion for her because I I despise her husband and the people who, who let her get to the point where she was because she was so very ill, Mm -hmm. but she was having active visual and auditory hallucinations as well. So she was meeting the true criteria for psychosis and delusional disorder is different. Delusional disorder very rarely has auditory or visual hallucinations. However, there is the belief that they may be hearing something or they interpret things. So, you know, Lori is very high functioning, you know, like we said, presents very well, but the level of beliefs about zombies and demons is just something out of like, it's of that bizarre delusion description that we use. So the second typology category is child maltreatment filicide. And this usually involves battered child syndrome, where the child is repeatedly injured through physical abuse. And this is really one of the only five categories where the child's death may not be intended, although it's not surprising given the level of abuse that we're talking about here. So again, just really, we're talking about a horrific case, Gabriel Fernandez, again, comes to mind for me. And then we have altruistic filicide. So this act, as weird as it sounds, is committed out of love, usually to help the child avoid perceived suffering. For example, if the child is disabled or there's financial suffering, the key, again, is perceived suffering by the parent and then this is the answer that they go to. So I would be interested in an even deeper subdivision of that. So if the child has severe CP, mm-hmm. you know, a cerebral palsy and like they're, or they're non, you know, in, in addition to like, just is not going to be able to have what would be considered a, yeah. a, a quality life or a pain-free life. Right. That would be very different from someone 
like we've given in our previous episodes, a dad who is makes a bad investment has ruined his family financially right. and he wants to save them the shame. It's like, no, 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 you're saving yourself the shame in yes. that. So I like that, that it's under the umbrella of altruistic, but I think that there could be probably a little bit further exploration of that. But thank you for pointing these out because who even knew that it had been subdivided this way? You went on and brought it us a couple of more points. This is, and even this is hard to say, unwanted child philosophy. The child yeah. is no longer wanted. And then the act of violence is undertaken to achieve getting rid of the child. Usually we're talking about the killing of newborns when we think about this category, but we also have cases like Susan Smith. That was very long ago, but yet another one. It's interesting if, to hear, if, to think if your guys would have remembered her. She, for those of you who don't recall, she got life in prison after she claimed that a black man had carjacked her with both of her sons inside, when in reality, she had let the car roll into a lake with both of her young boys trapped inside because she perceived that her new boyfriend did not want kids. Mm -hmm. It's actually, I think he had kind of communicated something like, I'm just not really into kids or I'm not really into kids with you. Yeah. And her line of thinking was, oh, well, if I get the kids out of the picture, then it will open up right. that avenue for me. And then number five, we have spousal revenge filicide. The motivation and the action of the offender is a deliberate attempt to make their spouse suffer. So even a murder-suicide situation. It's generally, in this case, male offenders, mm -hmm. not surprised there. I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by that. But you also found a 10-year study from Australia that showed that while separation was a factor that was identified in a significant number of these cases, more cases analyzed showed that evidence of mental illness was present, mainly significant levels of depression for these male perpetrators yeah. of this particular type of filicide. So out of... Acutely psychotic, child maltreatment, altruistic, unwanted, and spousal revenge. What could we opine that's going on for Lori, do you think? I would say I can't necessarily comment. I could say given the picture of a profile such as this that we would be looking at, mm -hmm. I think that it actually can't be contained by just one Agreed. of Resnick's bullet points. I definitely think that it could fit with number one, acutely psychotic. So like I said before, it's not active schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Well, she does hear voices or she mm -hmm. said that she has heard the voice of the angel Moroni. But unlike people with schizophrenia, she's very much able to navigate the world and carry out a certain level of adult activities of daily living in a way that someone with a more severe form of psychosis would not be able to. However, the thing that's not covered in these other bullet points is the level of self-aggrandization, of expansive view of her own personality, of grandiosity, of that special. There's a thing that we look at with people who have religious fixation when they basically feel that they have a special relationship relationship with divinity. Mm -hmm. They may not always think that they're the next coming of an avatar or a savior, but that they have specific specialized knowledge about it and that they are chosen in some way. So that can be folded in to the psychosis. But anyway, that's my long winded way of saying I think it's something that is part of your five points, but also adding to it. Yeah, I think I would kind of say that a profile like this fits under the acutely psychotic category, the altruistic category, because if you think your child is a demon or a zombie, 
zombie and you're putting them out of their misery, True. then I think that fits really well there. Which is the Andrea Yates. Right, right. right. And then I wonder about unwanted child. Because again, it's the two minor children that are living with mm. her and Chad and are, even though it might fit into the delusion, are they not part of the master plan, right? So again, it's like, okay, well, what's the root of that? Is it because they're the dark spirit or is it maybe Chad just didn't want these little kids around? So he labeled them as such. Well, each of them seems to be people that want to be the center of their own yeah. telenovela. Yeah. You know, and like you made a really, I think a very, very salient point with Colby being sort of out of the picture as an adult and a young father himself. Mm -hmm. He even describes himself as pulling away from the dynamic because he now has his own responsibilities. Right. And likely, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to him years later and see if he has, now that he's in a, a really healthy relationship, like what is it like looking back on your relationship with your mom? Has your, has your perspective shifted in any way? Yeah. So, yeah, I noticed, you know, Lori's very driven, but she is also very entitled. She's also very selfish. She has a religious fixation that is entwined with those three previous bullet points. And she has some real, I mean, we can frame these things as altruistic, but we can also frame them as very comfortable with violating the rights of others, which falls in line with antisocial personality disorder. But Got not, it. not, I'm not going to say a full diagnosis of any specific diet of no. any of those. I think it's a, it's a very complex picture that's very, being painted here. Very complex. I do not envy the uh, forensic psychologists and psychiatrists no. that have this job in front of them. Okay. Rating system, ratings. How many brains are we going to give sins of our mother? I went ahead and gave it four brains. I thought it was it's such a wildly sad story, but I'm, like I said, I like the way it just unfolded for me as a true crime consumer, but also didn't make me feel yucky for watching it or that it was exploitative. And Colby and of course, you know, Lori's mom as well, being a big part of this. I mean, Colby more than anyone, like his thread is all throughout it, even until the end and how they sort of pay homage to Tylee and JJ and Charles as he's moving on with his family. It was just nice to have his perspective and him feeling like he was yeah at least ready at this point to tell his family's story. And I think he even says he didn't want Lori's story to be the whole family story. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I think I'm going to give it a little bit lower. I'm going to give it 3.5 for a couple of reasons. I loved everything that you just said. I just don't know if this was the time to do it mm -hmm. yet. Yeah too soon. I think it's too soon. And I would not be surprised if once this is adjudicated, finally, that we will have another production come out that will give a lot more information on a lot of these sort of dead end narrative threads right. that just stop. Because to me, they're very obvious that there's more information there. So yep. I would, I'll still watch it. I'll watch the, I'll watch whatever else comes out about it. Cause it's fascinating. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everyone. We have wrapped up February and we hope you're having a good month and we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. 
The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>